How to Play, Episode L, Ryan's Reviews. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. This is one of How to Play's special lettered episodes. What's it about? Well, whatever it is, it's going to be special. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, How to Play listeners. How have you been? I have been well, thank you for asking. Um, I bet you've been wondering where I've been. I've been taking a little bit of a break. As you know, we had the summer fundraiser for the six episodes for the last half of 2012 that went very well. I appreciated your support very much. Um, But when that was completed, I decided to take just a bit of a break. And it's actually been a a nice little relief after three and a half years of of putting out about a podcast a month uh, to just not have that pressure of of trying to get a podcast out uh, just to take a little time off from how to play. I hope you don't mind. Um, It's very exciting having two children under the age of four spending time with them and and just watching them grow and and it's it's been fantastic as well as a a new job in a new district not to mention a project that's taken up a lot of my time and that is uh, my first real serious gamer game design project and working with jeff on trading in the mediterranean and we're doing sort of an open design project. If, if you're not a Ludology listener, I encourage you to check that out, starting with the empty box. And that's going very well. We're up to uh, the fourth version, and I'm really excited about the fourth version. I think I think the game's come a long way. It's been a very exciting and rewarding process, but that also, unfortunately, takes a lot of time. But one thing I wanted to do for a while is uh, I had another set of Dice Tower segments that fit nicely together, um, these, these Ryan's Reviews Over the last year, I did several reviews for the Dice Tower podcast, and I thought I would just package all those reviews neatly together here for you. I have six reviews for you to listen to, and they are on Glory to Rome, 1989, High Frontier, Urban Sprawl, Rune Wars, and Catan Traders and Barbarians. Now, when I started doing these segments, I had never actually done reviews before. Um, I just have taught people how to play games and gushed about games I liked. And um, one of the suggestions I used actually was some of the feedback from game designer Louis Pulsifer, who put on our Ludology Guild uh, when when we were talking about reviewers and the jobs of the reviewers. And he explained what he thought a review should be. And I thought that summed it up pretty well. Uh, his three key components of a review were to explain what a game is trying to do, Step one. Step two, how the designer went about trying to accomplish those goals. And step three, how the reviewer thought that the designer was able to accomplish those goals. And I thought that was an excellent framework for setting up a a review. And so that's sort of the format I tried to follow was explain what the game tries to do, how the game designer does it, and what I thought about it. Because I find that a lot of times reviewers uh, are criticizing games because not because maybe they're bad games, but because they're not the kind of games that they like. So I was more trying to look at it in terms of 
how they met the goals that they were, they were trying to accomplish, uh, thanks to my friend Mr. Pulsifer. So we're about to get to these reviews that I've done uh, over the last many Dice Towers, I suppose, spread out all over the place. Um, I hope you'll wait patiently. I, I'm not ready to hang up how to play yet. The website will still be there, um, and I'm... I'm waiting to sort of, I guess, get inspired again. I had a crazy idea that maybe, maybe I would try to bang out a whole bunch of them uh, over the summertime, maybe uh, start another supporter drive and, and try to do a whole bunch like six in two months or something crazy that, that might make me crazy. But, uh, but I'm uh, something I just considered and popped into my head. If that's something that, that you feel you would be willing to support and are interested in let me know there at the how to play guild or if a, a game pops up that i just fall in love with and I, I get that itch to grab the mic again you never know you could just hear another episode of how to play pop up over the next few months but for now let's get to these six reviews i have for you uh, i hope you enjoy them we'll go in order from the most recent to the oldest review which is the Catan traders and barbarians um, podcast segment, and that segment actually is my third ever contribution to the Dice Tower a long, long time ago, so it, it might be pretty horrible. Just um, just be prepared for that. So away we go. We will start with the new black box edition of the game Glory to Rome. A final note that many of these games were provided to me by the publisher as review copies. Thank you to those publishers for supporting my podcasting work. All right, let's get to the reviews. Hello, listeners. This is Ryan Sturm of the How to Play and Ludology podcast, back with another of Ryan's reviews. Today, I'll be reviewing Glory to Rome, the Black Box Edition. So there's two things I want to talk about. First, the game of Glory to Rome itself, as well as the new production of this game. Glory to Rome originally was released in 2005. It's a Puerto Rico-inspired and, and later, I guess, San Juan-inspired card game involving players taking turns using the main mechanic of role selection, as well as using the cards in their hand in multiple ways to acquire resources and using those resources to score points. It's a, a Euro game card game. This is a very well-regarded game. It's, it's very highly rated, and it's often underappreciated because of the original art in the game. It had this uh, goofy, silly, cartoony artwork, and, and some people claim that that's, that's shallow, that that's ridiculous, that any game that's a great game, people should play it, no matter what the art on the card looks like. Well, maybe, but it, it's not inconsequential. I, I guess I'm one of those shallow people that refused to pick up this game just because I didn't like the way the cards looked. Aesthetics are a part of this hobby, you know, and much like other art forms, uh, you know, ugly rock stars sell less music. <laughs> games with ugly art sell less games. The production is a part of that whole package. And this Glory to Rome black box edition was created from that demand, from the consumers wanting a, an alternate version of the art and a, a new look, a new graphic design. So I'll review these parts separately. First, the game itself and then the production of the game. 
the game hasn't changed since 2005. It's a similar game to San Juan and Race for the Galaxy, as role selection is the base mechanic of the game, and players are building a tableau that gives you powers that interact in interesting ways, and players are using the cards for multiple purposes. But this game in particular is unique in that players can improve their abilities in those roles. It's different in that when a player chooses a role, all players don't get to do it automatically. They have to spend some of their resources, some of their cards, in order to perform that role. The other thing that's unique about Glory to Rome is that players are managing resources in three different locations, and they need to figure out how to best utilize an ever-shifting landscape of the cards that are in that common pool, as well as the, the buildings opponents have and opponents' abilities to do certain actions. And so in looking at how good this game is, that right there is what sets this game apart. It really makes this game a very interactive experience. Race for the Galaxy is an excellent game, but I, I think it's a certainly a compliment to say that Glory to Rome is of that same caliber. And both games are worthy of being in your collection if you enjoy that genre. Next, let's look at that production, and when I saw the pictures of this, I was very excited and definitely wanted a copy. I love the new look of the game. Some people like that look, some people find it bland and dull. I guess it depends on your personal taste. I think, in general, it's going to have more wide appeal. So that having been said, when I actually received my copy of the game, there are several things that were a little bit disappointing. Um, the top of my box was a little bit indented, as if someone had stepped on it. Uh, there was a little bit of bubbling on the top of the packaging. Uh, the rule book was a little marred. Some of that ink ended up on the top of the box. After advertising on Kickstarter, they would have state-of-the-art cutting and printing. Uh, you know, the cards, whereas they are nice, they do have you know, a few white marks on the on the edges of the backside of some of the cards, which is which is annoying. So all these things, they're kind of really nitpicks. However, when the big selling point of this game and big push for people to kickstart it and buy maybe another copy or to buy this game was that this was going to be the ultimate production. And so it's just really unfortunate that this great game, and I truly think it is a great game that's worthy of being in a lot of your collections, that it was a bit of a missed opportunity and, and a disappointment that we didn't get the total perfect package that many of us dreamed that it would be. That being said, if you do not own Glory to Rome yet and you were turned off by the, the cartoony artwork, I think you'll still be pretty happy with this game, even with the, those minor production flaws. So I, I would definitely recommend picking it up, especially if you enjoy that uh, race for the galaxy type genre of Euro card game. Hello, my Dice Tower friends. This is Ryan Sturm of the Ludology and How to Play podcast with another of Ryan's reviews. Today, I'll be talking about 1989, Dawn of Freedom. Now, 1989, what is it? It is basically an alternate version of the excellent and popular game Twilight Struggle. Now, the origins of this game are interesting as it was sort of a, a fan-designed game designed by Ted Torgerson, which... Jason Matthews, the co-designer of Twilight Struggle, saw and, and was excited by and worked with Ted to refine, develop, and publish this game. You can tell that the game was heavily inspired by using that card-driven structure of Twilight Struggle, but 
focusing the game on a single year's events, 1989, as well as the geography of the game focused on Soviet control of six countries. So let's look at what's different between this game and the original Twilight Struggle. One of the major changes is in the geography of the game, as there's not just geographical connections as there is in Twilight Struggle that you're spreading your influence across, but there's also sociological connections within the game. Within each of these six countries, there are groups of people. There are the writers and the students and the workers and the farmers and the elite and the politicians, and they have logical connections between these. For example, if you influence the writers, you now ha have an inroad in influencing the students within a country. Another of the major changes in the game is the way that the scoring works. When a player scores a country with one of these scoring cards, there's like a little mini game that occurs. Players will get a number of cards from this separate deck called a power struggle deck, and you get cards equal to how many areas in that country that you control, meaning that you'll have a, a better chance of winning this mini game if you have more control in the country and then they play essentially what's almost like a trick-taking game trying to run their opponent out of a suit of cards to win what's called this power struggle and whoever wins gets a bonus that, that affects the scoring of the country another change is instead of sort of the the back and forth that is twilight struggle the soviet player begins the game assuming to have control of these six countries and is, is trying to prevent this slow crumbling that occurs uh, throughout the process of the game, whereas the democratic player is trying to make inroads and trying to, to topple these countries. And if the democratic player takes over a country or the communist player surrenders one of those countries, basically that country of the six countries is essentially out of the game and focus shifts then to the other countries. So that's what it changes. What do I think about those changes? I love the sociological connections idea. I think it adds a wonderful thematic feel to the game of this connections between the different groups and how that can be used in the event cards in the game that instead of you're affecting a particular location, you're affecting a group of people, which is really fun. I love the different feel of the Soviet being in control of everything and slowly crumbling. It gives a different narrative instead of the back and forth that is uh, Twilight Struggle. I really like the new support check rules. In Twilight Struggle, people always use coups and, and never use realignment. It takes the, the cool part about realignment in that having adjacent stuff is important and makes that important in the, the utility factor of what was the coups and combines them into one more interesting mechanic. And so that, I think, works better, actually, than it does in Twilight Struggle. Though I have to say, I don't really care for the mini-game of those power struggles that occurs after the scoring. You know, it seems like the player ahead should win, and if they don't, and assuming they played it well, they just sort of get punished randomly. Figuring out the strategy of what is this little trick-taking game is a little bit strange, and the whole thing seems a little bit disconnected for me from the rest of the game, in addition to just making the game a little bit longer when it doesn't need to. Overall, the production is excellent. So in conclusion, if you love Twilight Struggle, you will enjoy 1989. It's not going to replace Twilight Struggle for you, but it's going to provide a wonderful alternative to the system, and you won't regret picking it up. If you don't own either of these games, Twilight Struggle or 1989, I highly recommend you start and pick up Twilight Struggle. This has been Ryan Sturm reviewing 1989 Dawn of Freedom, 
published by GMT Games. On a related note, Jeff Engelstein and myself were fortunate enough to be able to interview Jason Matthews, co-designer of Twilight Struggle and 1989 on the Ludology podcast, episode 43. So if you're a fan of those games, I recommend you checking that out. Hi everyone, this is Ryan from How to Play in Ludology, and it's time for another of Ryan's reviews. Today I'd like to review Phil Eklund's High Frontier. High Frontier is a simulation game of space exploration and industrialization. Players will need to load a space shuttle with all the proper equipment and fuel to claim a site in the galaxy, bring equipment to that site to develop space technology, and then use that advanced technology to further develop their ability to industrialize the solar system. One of the players I was playing with contrasted this game experience as the polar opposite to a game we played last week, which was Lords of Waterdeep. And I tend to agree. Whereas despite all the pretty pictures, Lords of Waterdeep is a Euro game through and through. You get cubes and you turn cubes into points. This game, High Frontier, is all theme. The geography of the solar system determines your missions, the technologies you acquire are based on actual science, and the problems you face in planning a mission are the same as actual scientists face today. This game experience really remind me of playing Phil Eklund's other popular game, Origins. In order to do anything in the game, I had to discover and plan how to proceed, and in doing so, discovered many aspects of the science behind the game, figuring out where in the solar system I could actually get with a solar-powered thruster, or where are the closest places to Earth to refuel. This is a unique game experience. It takes a committed effort to learn and play. I spent about four hours just learning how to play this game. Halfway through, I almost quit thinking I may not be smart enough to play this game. I sat down trying to do sample moves, and it took me about an hour just to figure out how to make my first move off of Earth. Even after you know the basics of what you can do, figuring out how to do anything successfully requires a lot of calculations. In my first game, in my first five missions, three of them were total disasters due to poor planning on my part. But in a Phil Eklund game, this is the game. Learning how to play the game and play it well, you're forced to learn the scientific content packed in that game. It's a different experience. and all this planning and calculations, you'll be forced to roll a die, and if you roll a one, your mission has failed due to unsuccessful navigation through a rubble pile, and everything you've done explodes, and you need ten more turns to rebuild. <laughs> This is not an easy or gentle experience. It is hard and requires a lot of brain power. It's also a simulation first and a game second. If you go into a Phil Eklund game for a competitive experience, you're going to be disappointed. If you go into it looking to learn something, you'll learn more than you ever thought a game could be possible of communicating. I actually feel like I could explain to someone the difficulties and common mistakes in preparing for an outer space voyage. Whereas, unfortunately, Lords of Waterdeep has left me completely unprepared to, uh, say, loot the crypt of Chanteau or eliminate a coven of vampires or, or in my research of chronomancy. High Frontier by Phil Eklund is a game for gamers who are looking to not just throw some dice or push some cubes or maybe even in playing a game to have fun, but are, are really looking to learn something because that is the Phil Eklund game experience. While you play it, you'll be constantly asking yourself, how the heck am I actually going to make this work? And that satisfaction when you finally figure it out. If that sounds like an experience for you, I recommend digging into High Frontier 
designed by Phil Eklund's Sierra Madre Games. To learn more about Phil and his work, check out episode 22 of the Ludology podcast, where Jeff and I were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to interview Phil Eklund. Today, I will be reviewing for you Rune Wars by Fantasy Flight Games. Now, Rune Wars is one of those games that comes in one of those monster boxes, and it is a big game. It's a game of fantasy army conquest, sort of in the vein of a Warcraft or Heroes of Might and Magic computer game in which the main object is to take territory on the board and gain resources and build up a large army and smash that army into your opponents and take enough territory to win the game. To win the game, you need to take seven hexes with what are called dragon runes to win the game. Now you start with a couple of those dragon runes, and throughout the play of the game, players win the ability to place more dragon runes on the board, mainly through this sub-game of player-controlled heroes going on these quests. So that's what the game's trying to do. It's combining this fantasy conquest game a la Warcraft and combine it with the appeal of sort of the quest elements maybe that you would find in a role-playing game. Now, how does it do this? The structure of the game is that it's broken in cycles of four turns corresponding to seasons. And each season has its own little deck. There's a fall deck and a winter deck and so on. The main play of the game is that of role selection, like we'd find in Puerto Rico, or more closely to Race for the Galaxy, in that players have eight different actions from which to choose. And so they're going to look at their cards, pick one of the actions, and they're simultaneously choosing them and flipping them over. This is different in some other games in that you have this hand of eight different actions, and you have to use four of them, and you don't get your cards back until the end of the year. Also, a really neat idea is this dominance bonus. The actions are numbered 1 through 8, and if you play them in an ascending order, say 1, 3, 5, 6, you get a bonus every time you play a higher numbered card than before. So the game is encouraging you to play in a certain way by giving you a reward, but you may really need to do one of those higher numbered actions to break up that streak of low to high, which is a clever idea. The game has a lot of things that you would expect from a fantasy conquest game. It has a modular board so you can build your little world to fight on. Uh, each player has one of four different factions, and each faction has five different unit types for which you to develop, and they each have special abilities. You can be the elves, the humans, the undead, or the scary beastie thingies. I'm pretty sure that's what they're called. There's neutral armies in the middle of the board. There's terrain types and mountains and lakes and things. The combat system uses a deck of cards called fate cards, which you flip to see if people hit or the units get to use their special abilities. Now, each player also controls heroes, and these heroes go off on little quests, but they own, they're very lazy. They only go out adventuring in the summer. And so every once every four turns, you get to move these guys and try to get to a specified hex listed on a card. And if you do that, then you might be able to get to play one of these dragon runes, which are the object of the game. The game also has an expansion now called Banners of War, which adds a lot more, more different unit types, more of every type of card in the game, options to let the heroes fight in the battles, and a lot of optional rules. So how well does the game work? I really like the action selection, the dominance mechanic, where players are encouraged to follow the set order and figure out at the beginning of the year you know, which actions they're going to play, but due to things coming up, you may have to break up that order. That works very well. I didn't really like the way the hero phase worked. 
I don't like how you have to go to a place and then you flip a card to see if you succeed. There's no real strategy to it and it's too thin thematically. You sort of have to read a paragraph of flavor text to see what you're doing. I didn't like this in Duel of Ages and, and I don't really like it here. I didn't care for the combat system in which you're flipping cards. I much prefer a fan variant in which you're rolling d20s to simulate those card flips. Overall, I wish the game had just a bit less going on. I think the game tries to do a bit too much. There's few too many rules, too many decks of cards, it actually takes away from the game experience. I would have preferred if the game would have just focused on that fantasy army building, because that's really the fun part of the game. I did love how it replicated that Heroes of Might and Magic or Warcraft experience in that you're just building up this gigantic army and then you get to smash it into your opponents. That part of the game works very well. I just wish I could take a little scalpel and trim this game down a little bit. If you get a chance to look into it and you're interested in that fantasy battle experience, you may want to check out Rune Wars by Fantasy Flight Games. <laughs>
Now, my biggest gripe with this game is not maybe what some other people have griped about it, and that is the randomness. My main issue with the game was that I had trouble initially understanding those three goals that I just mentioned. I wish the rulebook had been a bit clearer on what players were trying to do. It went over quite thoroughly the components and phases, but in teaching the game I found it hard to teach because I didn't truly understand the goals of the game. This is a common mistake that rules often do a good job of explaining how to do things, but there's hardly any information on why players would want to do any of those things. It's also hard to know what's coming uh, with these event cards and knowing what to expect with these random events until you've played the game before. On my second play, I had a much better experience with the game because I sort of knew what was coming. The game has three phases, town, city, and metropolis decks, with better and more powerful buildings in each deck, with probably twice the amount of buildings you would use in a single play, so that offers a lot of variety. The end of each turn... You fill the card rows up, and as you do that, some of these event cards will come up. And it's always sort of nail-biting as you watch those cards flip over, and you don't know if you're going to get richly rewarded or punished by the deck. Not only with the events, but also the cards trigger the payouts and the elections for these special abilities. Now, as I mentioned, a lot of people have griped about the amount of chaos or randomness that occurs from mainly this card flipping. But I think that once you know what is in the deck, you're less likely to be surprised, and you're more likely to be cheering for or against the timing of a certain scoring, or getting elected with that special ability, or for having the most valuable building. You know what's coming, you're just sort of waiting for when they're going to show up. It's a probability game, which will swing things one way or another for a player, but they're going to get that reward for putting themselves in a position that they know could pay off. Now, Urban Sprawl plays with two to four, I think that it's best with three people, as the turns are very long, and you could get bogged down with downtime, cycling around. It's a long game, it's three to four hours, and as I said, it needs an investment by players to really understand what they're doing, and to sort of learn that deck a little bit, and it'll probably be most enjoyed from the second play on. So if you can get through those qualifiers, if you're looking for a three-player game, you're not afraid of a longer game, you're not afraid to dig into a game, and if you like games with a lot of interesting decisions, but are able to not take a three to four hour game like this too seriously, I think that you can have a great time with this game. Despite all those qualifiers and the randomness that was mentioned, there's something oddly fascinating about this game. I've had a really good time with it so far and, and look forward to giving it another go. You never quite know how things are going to work out in the game of Urban Sprawl by GMT Games. This is Ryan Stern from the How to Play Podcast, and today I'm going to do a little quick review on Traders and Barbarians, the new expansion for Settlers of Catan. If you're going to talk about 1995, you have to talk about Settlers. This is the game that introduced the hobby to so many of us, including me. I've been playing this game for about 10 years, and I love it, but I've played it a ton, and frankly, I'm a bit tired of it. So I really wasn't too excited about another Settlers expansion, even after receiving it as a gift. 
But I cracked open the rules and it sounded pretty interesting. And I've played three of the scenarios and each one I've played I've been totally surprised by in just how new and fresh the game feels. The game comes with a few rule tweaks that you can add, but really what it gives you is five different scenarios with which to play the game and the components for playing it. I tried the fisherman, which adds a new resource that you can get from the water, the fish, which you can trade in for various things, which really changes up the game. I also played the caravans, which is a really neat change on the game because anytime someone builds a city or a settlement, there's an auction component introduced. You all bid how much resources you want to spend to decide where the camel's going to come from this central oasis tile. And the camels are good because they give you more victory points. So it adds this element of maybe holding back resources, maybe not trading resources because you're holding them for this bid that's going to occur shortly. And it really changes the game in an interesting way. And the one I just played recently is the largest scenario, which is the Traders and Barbarians scenario. And what this does is introduces a pickup and deliver mechanism into the game of Settlers. And there's three tiles, and you're going to have a little caravan, a little wagon that's moving back and forth. And you want to have roads that that caravan can travel on because that's going to allow you to move faster from side to side, which gives you more victory points, which is just a fascinating change to the game. It completely changes changes how you play a normal game of Settlers. I sat down trying to play this the normal way I've played Settlers for 10 years and got completely crushed. And I can't wait to get this scenario, the other scenarios, and the ones I hadn't played yet to the table. So for the $30 you can pick this up for, it's well worth it. If you used to like Catan and are burnt out on it, you really should give this a try. It may just rekindle your love of that old classic from 1995, The Settlers of Catan. Well, there you go. Six reviews on six very interesting and different games. That'll do it for this special episode. If you miss me, you can always catch me two times a month over on the Ludology podcast with Jeff Engelstein. Uh, we recently did a two-episode blowout discussing all the games we've played over the last year, talking about which games I'm adding to my top 50. So if you missed that, definitely head over to ludology.net and listen to those two episodes. Also, of course, there are over 50 episodes of How to Play for you to enjoy if you missed any of them. Uh, take take this time off to uh, to catch up on some of the ones you've missed. Unless somehow, some way, you've actually listened to every minute of the How to Play podcast. I would be, I'd be pretty stunned. I will give you a geek gold if you come on the guild and tell me that you honestly have listened to every minute of this show. That, that is dedication. That is dedication. That is how to play commitment right there. And we've had great commitment from you. Every step of the way, the last three and a half years have been have been a lot of fun, and uh, thanks to you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play Podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. 
If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.